is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination and knowledge. It is an area which we call a podcast. You are about to be taken on a wild journey through existence, the idea behind existence. For you have just entered. The Penguin Zone. Hello, hello everybody and welcome back to The Penguin Zone. For the final episode of season three. Thank you for sticking through with me folks. It has been a pleasure, it has been a magical journey, but don't worry, we've not stopped yet there. We'll definitely be going ahead for a season four. I can't wait to start that off, that will be a week ahead of tonight, or a week after tonight. But until then, let's get started with tonight's very theoretical, creepy episode. Tonight, we are going to be taking a look at existence. We're going to be taking a look specifically at why we exist, the idea behind existence, and the possibility of existence of terrestrial life in outer space or beyond Earth. So, without any further ado, Let's begin. Let's begin. Sorry. For the final goddamn time. Let's begin with tonight's episode. So, starting off, why we exist? Well, according to new scientists here, they say, and I quote, There is plenty to recommend the standard model, our best description of particles and their interactions. But it has the odd, awkward lapse. It is a somewhat embarrassing fact that it fails to explain our existence, says Werner Rojohan at the Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics in Germany. half of the article, considering they're one of those sites that goes, oh, continue reading, subscribe now for unlimited access. Shut up. I'll read what I can get. Continuing. Actually, it's worse than that. The standard model positively insists we don't exist. It says that in the Big Bang, matter and antimatter should have been created in equal measure. These two famously don't get along. Annihilating one another in a flash of light whenever they come within touching distance. They should have snuffed each other out in a hall. They should have knocked each other out in a 
a big fight of mutual destruction, a big wrestle, <laughs> of mutual destruction during the first second of the universe's existence, leaving a cosmos filled with nothing but light. It would look very different, not least because planets and stars and life could not evolve in such an environment, says Tara Shears at the University of Liverpool, UK. And yet, here we are, folks. Somehow, matter one. So what that basically says is that, according to... I guess, the standard model. It insists that we don't exist. That we are not here. We are not a part of life. Matter. Like it said, matter and antimatter were intended to be created in an equal measure. But it was some sort of fight of destruction. And matter had won that fight. And that is exactly why we are here, folks. Due to matter, being such a good boxer. I don't know. I'm going to get the last tiny bit I can get. That. That's all I can get for you on there, folks. Sorry, do not blame me. Go blame New Scientist. Bunch of stuck-up scientists. Right, so it says... One possibility is that the antimatter, sorry folks, is just hiding. Some of it somehow escaped the death match, taking refuge in little safe spots that eventually became distant regions as the cosmos cooled and expanded. Well wow, so basically according to it. So yeah, we should not exist. But saying that there's a possibility that antimatter is hiding out there somewhere, ready to take place, ready to fight again, and make us disappear, practically. Do not be afraid, folks. It should be all good. Also, by the time you're gone, it'll probably take place, and I'd say that's probably maybe billions, if not trillions, of light years. And one light year's massive enough in itself so think about billions of trillions of massive you'll be fine fat generations will be fine by that time we may have built anti-anti-matter take material you never know so if you're worried for the people in the future I'm sure they'll be all good too so do not worry about that. Now, obviously there's there's the theories of what's the meaning behind life and existence. Something here saying what's the purpose of your existence. That's according to taking charge. Your life purpose consists of the central motivating aims of your life. The reasons you get up in the morning. Purpose can guide life decisions, influence behaviour, shape goals, offer a sense of direction, and create meaning. For some people, purpose is connected to vocation. Meaningful, satisfying work, basically. 
Now, what I believe is the meaning behind life. I don't. I connect sometimes both religion and science. Science, like I'm a Catholic Christian, but I do believe in a lot of science. Obviously, science is real, but I also believe that religion is real. I'd say religion is real. It's true, I believe what happened ages ago. And the same goes for science. And while you may argue that, oh, it's just writings in a book, how does that make any sense? Yeah, sure, it can be from all the way back, but uh, oh, wait, isn't there other writings from a good bit back, but you tend to believe them, but not the religion? Now, you may argue, yes, but Nicholas, see, they've not been, you know, copied over into multiple books over time. Ah, uh, indeed they have. Many of them have been copied multiple times into multiple different versions. So, are you going to choose to believe that and not believe religion then? And if you do not want to believe religion, sorry, religion, then be my guest, I guess. If that suits you, if that's the way you feel about it, then you go ahead. But all I'm saying is, why believe one when the other is practically the same? So, in that instance, why believe one and not the other? Rather an act of motivation than facts. Opinion rather than facts. But, hey, that's your opinion, I guess. As long as you're not anti-religion, because, yeah, then you can go. You know where to. Right. So it's a family friendly podcast So I'm not allowed to say But you get the idea I'm also going to take something from BBC's website The article is Why is there something Rather than nothing Or why does anything exist at all This is on bbc.co.uk So if you want to take a look at that Folks Then please be my guest It is by Robert Adler and was published on the 6th of November, 2014. It says, People have wrestled with the mystery of why the universe exists for thousands of years. Pretty much every ancient culture came up with its own creation story, most of them leaving the matter in the hands of the gods. And philosophers have written reams on the subject. But science has had little to say about this ultimate question. However, in recent years, a few physicists, sorry, physicists and cosmologists have started to tackle it. They point out that we now have an understanding of the history of the universe and of the physical laws that describe how it works. That information, they say, should give us a clue about how and why the cosmos exists. Their their admittedly controversial answer is that the entire universe, from the fireball of the Big Bang 
to the star-studded cosmos we now inhabit popped into existence from nothing at all. It had to happen, they say, because nothing is inherently unstable. Then again, I want to point out, they believe that something came from nothing. They, they're saying, oh, it must have happened, right? It's odd that we make the same points in religion, isn't it? Hmm. Ah, well, sure, sure it's nothing. Right, anyways. So, like it says, this idea may sound bizarre, or just another fanciful creation story. But the physicists argue that it follows naturally from science's two most powerful and successful theories. Quantum mechanics and general relativity. Here, then, is how everything could have come from nothing. Particles from empty space. I'm going to try and summarise this as much as possible, folks, so we're not, like, messing up time. Um, you know, not, like, physically amazing, you know, messing around with time, not making good time management, things like that, but anyways. Particles from empty space. We'll talk fast. First, we have to look at the realm of quantum mechanics. This is the branch of physics that deals with very small things, atoms and even tinier particles. It is an immensely successful theory, and it underpins most modern electronic gadgets. Quantum mechanics tells us that there's no such thing as empty space. Okay, odd. Anyways, even the most perfect vacuum is actually felt by a roiling cloud of particles and antiparticles, which flare into existence and almost instantaneously fade back into nothingness. Hmm. Odd. Anyways. These so-called virtual particles don't last long enough to be observed directly. But we know... But we know they exist by their effects. Space-time. From no space and no time. From tiny things like atoms to really big things like galaxies. Our best theory for describing such large-scale structures is general relativity. Albert Einstein's crowning achievement, which sets out how space, time and gravity work. Relativity is very different from quantum mechanics, and so far nobody has been able to combine the two seamlessly. However, some theorists have been able to bring the two theories to bear on particular problems, by using carefully chosen approximations. For instance, this approach was used by Stephen Hawking at the University of Cambridge to describe black holes. Here's a quote, folks. I do not know if it is by Stephen Hawking, because it actually doesn't say who the quote's by. Isn't that very helpful, BBC? But... We'll continue with it, guess. It is quoted, In quantum physics, if something is not forbidden, 
it necessarily happens. Okay. I do want to point out again, folks, once again, this is just a theory, apparently. Which you also tend to say that religion would be. And you're saying something's got to have happened. Well, I'm also saying something has got to have happened. That's all I'm saying. Just saying. I'm going to move on to something else, folks. A universe from a bubble. So it's not just particles and antiparticles that can snap in and out of nothingness. Bubbles of space-time can do the same. Alright. <laughs> Still, it seems like a big leap from an infinitesimal... 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 Yeah, I think I got it right. Infinitesimal space-time bubble to a massive universe that hosts 100 billion galaxies. Surely, even if a bubble formed, it would be doomed to disappear again in the blink of an eye. <laughs> According to this, actually, it is possible for the bubble to survive. Please go ahead and explain. Well... But for that, we need another trick. Cosmic inflation. Tricks and tricks and more tricks. Great. <laughs> Anyways. Most physicists now think that the universe began with the Big Bang. At first, all the matter and energy in the universe was crammed together in one unimaginably small dot, and this exploded. This follows from the discovery. In the early 20th century, the universe is expanding. If all, gal- if all the galaxies are flying apart, they, mil- they must have once have been close together. Inflation theory proposes that in the immediate aftermath of the Big Bang, the universe expanded much faster than it did later. This seemingly outlandish notion was put forward in the 1980s by Alan Guth at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and refined by Andrea Lindy, now at Stanford University. The idea is that a fraction of a second after the Big Bang, the quantum-sized bubble of space expanded stupendously fast. In an incredibly brief moment, it went from being smaller than the nucleus of an atom to the size of a grain of sand. When the expansion finally slowed, the force field that had powered it was transformed into the matter and energy that filled the universe today. Guth calls inflation the ultimate free lunch. As weird as it seems, inflation fits the facts rather well. In particular, it neatly explains why the cosmic microwave background, the faint remnant of radiation left over from the Big Bang, is almost perfectly uniform across the sky. If the universe had not expanded so rapidly, we would expect the radiation to be patchier than it is. Interesting. Basically, I want to say it. Want to say about that, folks. Sorry. 
is that I understand if you believe in a lot of science, right? As do I. Science is pretty real. But all I've got to say is religion is pretty real, real as well. There's many ways you can say as to why it's fake. But then again, you would be kind of disregarding your ideas as to why existence comes into place. Which very much, depi- very much depicts the idea of science. But hey, I believe in both, so this isn't biased. I believe both very, very much. I don't believe that there could be some sort of big bang. <laughs> what I believe is that there was a big bang, and all that came into place. But God was a part of that big bang. He didn't cause it, but it was one of the things that came from it. I believe that all that happened. And then he came along with the idea of Earth. He made Earth either from just basically a random star in the sky. Yeah, I'd say that was it was. It was a random star in the sky or star in space. Planet, star. (laughs) But he made it into Earth. He created life. He created this planet that we currently live on. He created us. I believe that, but I do believe that he came from the Big Bang. That's what I believe. So, it is not biased. Now, the idea behind existence. I hastily said that, but I'll also quickly add on. The existence is the ability of an entity to interact with physical or mental reality. In philosophy, it refers to the ontological property of being. So that's that. So I'd say that pretty much covers why we exist and the idea behind existence. What now, folks? Time to very much creep you out, rather. This shall be fun. The possibility of existence of terrestrial life beyond Earth. Now, we'll take a look at the National Geographic article on it first, and then the NASA article. Two more, very more trustable sources that you are most likely to know from. So you may be more inclined to listen now. Because you know these are more trustable sources. Rather than if I was to grab an article off of Wikipedia, which I have not done yet, folks. Because, let's just say, bloody chair. Right, anyways, let's just say, Wikipedia isn't the most reliable source. You can easily edit things on Wikipedia. Which I don't think should be allowed, because there's plenty who can just edit in stupid ways and make so much inaccurate false information. It's not helpful. Don't get me wrong, not everything is false on Wikipedia, but a whole lot of it is. Which is quite unfortunate, because it's always right there. It's so tempting to use it. So, now, continuing with the National Geographic article. Cool. So, one second. So this is about um, 
a woman who's 47 years old and she's an astrophysicist. Her name is Seeger, or Seeger, I'm going to call her Seeger. So it says here, when Seeger entered graduate school in the mid-1990s, we didn't know about planets that circled their stars and ours or others. Sorry, read that, folks. When Seeger entered graduate school in the mid-1990s, we didn't know about planets that circle their stars in hours or others that take almost a million years. We didn't know about planets that revolve around two stars or rogue planets that don't orbit any star but just wander about in space. Basically, I'm pretty sure, folks, a rogue planet is like one that's been knocked out of its solar system, knocked out of place, and it floats around in space all solo. Therefore, it's not any heat, and it'll just go to full cold. I was listening to, or sorry, watching a video by Kurzesat, I think its name is. K-U-R-Z-E-S-A-G-T, and then Dash, in a nutshell. You know, I think he said that it is somewhat possible in some way or form, to actually survive on a rogue planet. Somewhat possible, I think he said. Which is quite interesting. So, continuing. In fact, we didn't know for sure that any planets at all existed beyond our solar system. And a lot of the assumptions we made about planets have turned out to be wrong. Interesting. The very first exoplanet found, 51 Pegasi b, discovered in 1995, was itself a surprise. A giant planet crammed up against its star, winding around in it just four days. Winning around it in just four days. Today, we have confirmed about 4,000 exoplanets. The majority were discovered by the Kepler Space Telescope launched in 2009. Kepler's mission was to see how many planets it could find orbiting some 150,000 stars in one tiny patch of sky. About as much as you can cover with your hand, with your arm outstretched. But its ultimate purpose was to resolve a much more freighted question. Are places where life might evolve common in the universe, or vanishingly rare? Leaving us effectively without hope of ever knowing whether another living world exists. Well folks... I'm going to cut that off there for that article and quickly move on to the NASA one. Techno signatures. 
The term technosignatures has a broader meaning than the historically used search for than the historically used search for extraterrestrial intelligence or SETI which has generally been limited to communication signals. Technosignatures like radio or laser emissions, signs of massive structures or an atmosphere full of pollutants or pollutants could imply intelligence. So, to quickly take a look at the history of the search for technological life. Efforts to, t- to detect technological technological advanced life predates the space age as early 20th century radio pioneers first foresaw the possibility of interplanetary communication. Theoretical work postulating the possibility of carrying signals on radio and microwave bands across vast distances in the galaxy with little interference led to first listening experiments in the 1960s. Thanks to NASA's Kepler mission, this mission's discovery of thousands of planets beyond our solar system, including some with key similarities to Earth, it's now possible to not just imagine the science fiction of finding life on other worlds, but to one day scientifically prove life exists beyond our solar system. As NASA's 2015 astrobiology strategy states, complex life may evolve into cognitive systems that can employ technology in ways that may be observable. Nobody knows the probability, but we know that it is not zero. As we consider the environment... (laughs) And also, folks, this is the quote done. <laughs> As we consider the environments of other planets, technosignatures, could be included in the possible interpretations of data we get from other worlds. Debate about the probability of finding signals of advanced life varies widely. In 1961, astronomer Frank Drake created a formula estimating the number of potential intelligent civilizations in the galaxy, called the Drake Equation, and calculated an answer of 10,000. Most of the variables in the equation continue to be rough estimates, subject to uncertainties. Another famous speculation on the subject called the Fermi Paradox posited by Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, asserted that if another intelligent life form was indeed out there, we would have met it by now. Hmm. I call cap, that's just absolute cap. That's not true, it doesn't mean we would have met it by now. Who knows, maybe maybe it knows we exist, but it's hiding from us because it's scared of us or it's planning to take over because it dislikes us it wants to be the only ones that basically the yeah the leaders basically the overall 
solo life in the galaxy, I guess, or the universe, yeah, the universe. NASA's SETI work began with a 1971 proposal by biomedical researcher John Billingham at NASA's Ames Research Centre for a 1,000-dish array of 100-metre telescopes that could pick up television and radio signals from other stars. Project Cyclops was not funded. But in 1976, Ames established an ETI branch to continue research in this area. NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory... JPL also began SETI work. In 1988, NASA headquarters in Washington formally formally endorsed the SETI program, leading to development of the High Resolution Microwave Microwave Survey. (laughs) Announced on Columbus Day in 1992, 500 years after Columbus landed in North America, This 10-year, $100 million project included a targeted search of stars led by Ames using the 300-metre radio telescope and in Arecable, Puerto Rico, and an all-sky survey led by JPL (laughs) using its deep space network dish. The programme lasted only a year before political opposition eliminated the project and effectively ended NASA's research research efforts in SETI. I think the government's got something to hide then. Hmm. Well, thank you for joining us, folks. That has indeed been, well, let's just say, a very interesting episode, folks. And I hope you've enjoyed your time. But just remember, be careful of where you venture off to, where you wander off into. For all you know, you could find yourself stuck in here. So just be careful next time. You have been a lucky traveller. You never know when you could be truly stuck. Truly captured. Just like if alien life were to take you in. For all you know, forever. Maybe not now, because you're lucky. But just be careful venturing off next time. Or you may find yourself stuck in... The Penguin Zone. Thank you for listening. Good night and goodbye. Careful on your next travels.